As you're finding your plates, take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Our text is going to be verses 1 through 7 this afternoon. And so I'll direct your attention there and you follow along as I read Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We're not going to consider every possible thing that we could pull out of that portion of Scripture this afternoon. But we are going to consider this idea and this thought of regaining your first love. There's a quote that was given by a British statesman back in the 18th century, and he was speaking before the British Parliament. And as he was speaking or giving this speech before the British Parliament, he said these words. He said, Very seldom does a man take one giant step from a life of virtue and goodness into a life of vice and corruption. Usually, he begins his journey into evil by taking little steps. Little steps into the shaded areas. Areas tinted and colored just a bit almost unnoticed by those around him, until one day, hardly aware that he made this journey, he finds himself firmly entangled in a life of vice and corruption. That thought that usually people don't take a giant step from a place of virtue into a place of vice or corruption, that thought is borne out in Scripture several times. I could give you a couple of examples You recall a man named Samson. He was one of Israel's judges. And most everyone would recall or know some things about Samson. But we read in the book of Judges how Samson was a hero. Samson was a judge of Israel. Samson was a man who the Bible says actually started his life as a man of God. Most of Samson's days were spent in what we might consider a relationship, even a close relationship, with Jehovah God. And the book of Judges actually tells us that Samson started his day with God, spent the day with God, and ended his day with God. But something happened over time. Gradually, little by little, pride, lust, and selfishness began to replace 
his love and devotion to God. By the time you get to the end of Samson's life in Genesis, or Genesis, Judges chapter 16, we read maybe one of the most startling statements and even saddest commentaries that we could ever even read in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 16 and verse 20, the Bible says that Samson wist not, he didn't know when the Spirit of God departed from him. A sad statement to be true. Samson had become so deeply entangled in his life of sin and become so insensitive to God's presence in his life that when the Spirit of God departed from him, Samson didn't even realize it. There's a man named Saul, King Saul. He was Israel's first king. When Saul is introduced to us in the Old Testament, we see a great beginning to a life of potential. He was a man who was recognized for his leadership abilities. A man who the Bible clearly states was a humble man. A man who loved God. A man whom God loved as well. But gradually, over a period of almost 40 years, Saul turned his back on God and his humility gradually was replaced by pride. His leadership became suspect and led him to some very bad decisions. He lost contact with God so that his love for God became virtually non-existent. Even to the point where he began to consult with witches, followers of Satan, rather than God. He didn't seek guidance from God anymore and direction in his life. That's not how he started. What a change in his life over 40 years. And if I could summarize it, if I could paraphrase some of the quote that I just read to you, it isn't the giant step from virtue into corruption that we need to fear. It's the little steps that ultimately lead us away from God. And we ought not to kid ourselves we ought not to fool ourselves into thinking that it could not happen to us. And I say that because it happened to a group of Christians who made up the church at Ephesus. We just read in Revelation chapter 2, this church in the first century, that they are the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to them, who says to them, I understand what you've been through, I understand what you've done. I see how you have served me over these years. And he points out the very good qualities of this church in Ephesus. And then Jesus says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. And here's what it is. You've left your first love. And so I want us to take a look briefly this afternoon at this church in Ephesus and see what it is that Jesus says to them, and I want to make some applications for you and me as well, because this church, when this was written to them, was about 40 years old. Our church is 40 years old this year. We should not fool ourselves or think that we are not subject to the same things. And I want us to talk about it today because we can serve and we can do a lot of things and we can be busy and busy in ministry 
And we can be doing it with the wrong motive and the wrong reason. And we ought to be witnesses for Christ. We ought to be out there with the gospel. But that is rooted in something. And the thing that it ought to be rooted in is my love for Jesus Christ and his love for me. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing this afternoon. Lord, we do pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be sensitive. That just because we're strong in the Lord now doesn't mean that we always will be. Or just because we're busy serving doesn't mean that the Lord is pleased. And help us to understand that you are more concerned with our love relationship with you than in what we do for you. You're more concerned about what we do with you, not, quote, for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use the word in our hearts today, that we would be sensitive to examine our own life. And Lord, that we would not be guilty of losing our first love. Or if we've come to a place in our Christian life where we are coasting along or we look at the things we do as a measure of our spirituality or a measure of our relationship, Lord, I pray that we would be sensitive to your spirit today to let the word of God examine us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to regain in our heart a strong conviction, a compelling, to have a deeper, closer relationship with you. And out of love for Christ and the love of Christ in us, out of that will come all of the right things with which you will be pleased. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Consider with me here, first of all, the church at Ephesus. We're going to look at it. And in order to do that, in order to appreciate it, we, we kind of need to go back and we need to look in the Scriptures at what this church really was all about. How they started, what they did. Because Jesus says a lot of good things about them. That they had some great qualities to them. And so to appreciate the church at Ephesus, it's a good idea to learn some things about it. To start, we should learn some things about the city of Ephesus as well. The city itself was one of the five greatest cities in ancient Rome. It was a commercial city. It was also a religious center in the first century. In Ephesus, there was the temple of Diana. There was the temple of Artemis. It was considered one of the greatest wonders of the world. The temple itself, and it tells you what kind of a religious situation was going on in the city, the temple itself was four times the size of the great Parthenon. And people took pride in it, certainly. Also, in Ephesus, uh, the population during that, the first century some people say was estimated to be over 300,000 people. It was, it was quite a large city. 
And that would have been somewhere in the first century before the turn of the century. There was a magnificent road that was the center of Ephesus. It was about 70 feet wide. It was lined with columns that ran the entire length of the street all the way down or from the harbor all the way to the great theater of Ephesus. And you can still see some of that today if you were to go over to Turkey and to tour or visit the city of Ephesus. You can see that great road and you can see even... um, I love history and I love ancient ruins and I love to learn about all of these things. And I've seen them um, online. I've never been there myself, but I know that these things do exist. You can see them today. There was a great theater in Ephesus. That Ephesian theater had a seating capacity of anywhere from 25,000 to 30,000 people, depending on whose estimates you're checking. The remains of that theater is still there today. It's historic And it serves actually as a background for for one of the greatest episodes of this early church, as recorded for us in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. And we're going to go there in just a minute. Actually, let's just turn there over to Acts chapter 19. And we'll look at a couple of things here. Just to paint a little bit of a picture of the church in Ephesus. The biblical context is that the Apostle Paul established the church in Ephesus during his second missionary journey. Paul visited this city on his way from Corinth to Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that Paul left the husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, in charge uh, in Ephesus. And while Paul was on his third missionary journey... The Bible tells us that he spent over two years in Ephesus. He had a very successful ministry there. And in the book of Acts, we're told that God did extraordinary things and miracles through the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 11, the Bible says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, And the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, the context here, if you go back to verse 1, it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And so we we know the context is that Paul is in Ephesus. And we see that, that God did amazing miracles through the Apostle Paul while he's there. Skip down to verse 20. The Bible says, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So Paul's ministry was was growing in the city of Ephesus. And so mightily did it grow that the word of God was prevailing. Now, what was it prevailing over? Well, let's go back to verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was, leap, uh, evil spirit was leaped on them, and overcame them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. 
And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. What's it prevailing over? It's prevailing over evil spirits, over false religion and the devil. And like lives are being changed and converted, and, and there's revival that's happening in the city of Ephesus because of the ministry of Paul. In fact, as time goes on, we find that at least 12 other churches were started in Asia Minor from the influence and the ministry of this church in Ephesus. Later on, the Apostle Paul sent Timothy back to Ephesus to pastor that church. During the time when Timothy was pastoring this church, Paul sent him two letters. We know them as 1st and 2nd Timothy. We also know that one of the Apostle Paul's greatest letters in the New Testament bears the name of this church. It's the book of Ephesians. That was a letter, an epistle written to this church. So much doctrine inside of the book of Ephesians. The point is, is that this wasn't just a small, out of the way, no one knows about, kind of church that's not really doing much at all for the Lord. This was a church that was doing things for God. This was a church that had history. This was a church that was planting other churches. This was a church that was, was they were vital and they were vibrant in their work for the Lord. That's who this church was. And that's what we need to keep in mind as we look at what Jesus says to this church about 40 years after it started. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. And the first thing that I want you to note is the evaluation of the church. The evaluation of the church in Ephesus. And, and we find in verses 1 through 3 several things. I'll get there myself. Revelation 2 in verse 1, the first thing that we see in the evaluation of the church is that there was praise for the church of Ephesus. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith the, he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We know that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this, verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Here we find some praise for the church at Ephesus. In verse 2, we find that they're a working church. Jesus says, I know thy works, and I know thy labor. Maybe this was a church that was very busy with lots of different ministries. He says, I know your work, 
and I know your labor. I am intimately aware of all the things that you're doing, the work that you do. Maybe you have a lot of busy going on, a lot of ministries happening. Not only were they a working church, but the Bible tells us they were a testing church. In verse 2, he says, I know your patience, and I know how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. You know what? They had their doctrine on straight. Their doctrine was based on the word of God. They were testing all the other things around them. Is it lining up with the word of God? They had their doctrine straight. They were a testing church. They weren't one that was compromising with the world around them or other religion. They were holding to the truth. Not only were they a working church, not only were they a testing church, but the Bible tells us that they had some discernment about them. They had discernment of false teachers, and they were determined that they were going to stay pure. Verse 6 tells us they were a church that opposed false doctrine and hated evil. In verse 6, but, thou, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, Jesus mentions the doctrine of the Nicolaitans here. The name Nicolaitans is derived from the Greek word Nicolaos. It's a compound of words. It comes from the word Nikos. It comes also from the word Laos. The word Nikos is the Greek word that means to conquer or to subdue. The word Laos is a Greek word for the people. So it's also where we get the word laity from in our English language. When those two words are compounded into one word, they form the name Nicholas, which literally means one who conquers or subdues the people. And it seems to suggest that the Nicolaitans were somehow conquering or subduing the people. Now, it goes a little bit deeper than that because it seems that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was this. They believed that it was all right basically to have one foot into the world and one foot in Christianity. Um, they basically were, were of the belief that you don't have to be so strict about separation from the world in order to be a Christian, or in order to be pleasing to God. That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that the Bible says Jesus hated. And the reason for it is because it led to a very weak version of Christianity. A Christianity that was powerless. A Christianity that was without conviction. A Christianity that was not at all of the power of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that, or what eventually happens in a life of worldliness or no separation, is you become a defeated, worldly type of Christian that is not representing the Lord Jesus Christ. It conquers the people. Well, Jesus said, you opposed that. You hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, just like I do. In other words, they were separated. 
And they had some conviction about that. Those were all good things. All the praise of the church at Ephesus. But then I want you to consider, secondly, the problem of Ephesus. Jesus says in verse 4, there's all of these things, and they're good things about you. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. See the words that Jesus says about this church? There's a glaring problem that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the church, He Himself saw a glaring problem in this hard-working, right-teaching, and doctrinally sound church. The problem was they had left their first love. And I doubt that losing its first love happened in one giant step. It wasn't that one day they decided not to love God anymore. We can assume safely that it was a gradual thing that took place in the life of this church. People who used to be convicted by the sermons that were preached no longer paid attention. Is there ever a time in your life where you loved God's Word and it really didn't matter who was preaching it because it was God's Word and you love God's Word and you love the truth of it and I'm paying attention to it, I want to grow from it, I want to learn from it. And over time, something has changed. Now, I don't have a lot of interest. Now, I just bide the time. Now, I want to be critical or nitpicky. What's changing? God's Word hasn't changed. It's not about the person. It's not about the delivery. It's about the truth of God's Word. Maybe people are being convicted by the Word of God and Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And there are some who have been hearing the Word of God and they've come to know Jesus Christ and they're saved and now they're being discipled and they're going to get baptized and there are things that are actually happening in the church and you used to be excited about people being saved. You used to, it used to move you and excite you that, that God was working and souls are being saved and people are being baptized. But now it really no longer has much effect anymore. The baptistry is out and someone's getting baptized and God's people are like, hmm. What's changing? What happened? Maybe there are people who used to view themselves as just a link in a chain to introduce people to Jesus Christ. But now I've stopped being intentional about my activity for the Lord, especially in the circle of influence that I have. In men's prayer meeting today, one of the men said, pray for me. I want to be a witness on my job. It's difficult. It's hard. 
The world hates Jesus Christ, and sometimes there are mockers, and sometimes there are those who despise Christianity or poke and prod. But his heart was, I want to be faithful to the Lord. I want to be a witness for Christ in the circle of influence that I have. Great prayer request. But I wonder if God's people sometimes get so used to the activities of the church and so caught up in our regular life that the fact that God put me here, the fact that I have influence, this is a sphere, that, a circle that God has placed me in. The fact that I could and have the responsibility to be a witness for Christ to these very people, it misses us. It's not a concern for us. We stop being intentional about our activity for Christ in our circle of influence. Maybe there are people who, in this church in Ephesus, who used to pray. They just stopped praying. Maybe it's people in this church in Ephesus who had lost the right motive for the things that they were busy doing. Instead of a devoted love for Jesus Christ, maybe they began to serve out of routine or out of obligation. The Apostle Paul, I think, is a good example of a first love. Paul recognized in his life and his ministry that he owed everything to God. And when you follow his life again and again and again, he said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I don't deserve the mercy that God has given to me. And Paul was, seemed to be always aware of who he was now compared to what he was in the past and what God had done in his life. Sometimes Christian people, they've been saved a long time, they kind of get into a mode almost of like, somehow we deserve the salvation we have. Or somehow God is, He got something when He got me. When in reality, we are sinners who are saved by grace, who don't deserve anything but death and judgment. And we're not special in the sense that there's something about us that is, you know, that God finds admirable. We are special in the fact that we're sons of God, praise the Lord, by His grace and His mercy. Amen? It's always good for us to remember who we were, what God saved us from. And it's only the work of God in my life. And if I'm anything... It's only because of the grace of God. And Paul seemed to never cease to just be overwhelmed by the fact that God could love somebody like him. And when he thought about that, in the book of Romans, Paul says, I'm a debtor. 
I'm a debtor to God. I'm a debtor to the Jews. I'm a debtor to the Greeks. I'm a debtor to the barbarians. In other words, because he had been so wondrously loved by God and saved, he owed it to God and to those in his circle of influence to share with them the same love that changed his life completely. That's how Paul saw himself. It's a wonderful thing to be saved, amen? Let me ask you a question. How do we lose something then as exciting and as wonderful as our salvation and our first love? How do we get to that point? You would think that we would take really good care of it. If it's something so valuable and so precious, you would think that we, we would never take a chance at losing it, the value of it or the joy of it or the preciousness of it. We can't lose our salvation, but you understand what I'm saying. Losing the joy of it or the, the value of it or the preciousness of it. But that's not the way things work so often. So how does that happen? Well, let me offer a few suggestions. And I'll use the scriptures here as we walk through this. But how is it that, again, it's not one giant step. It's not one huge leap and one decision today that I'm not going to love God anymore. We ought to fear the little steps. How does that happen? Well, first of all, there could be increased wickedness. Go to Matthew chapter 24. And it's the wickedness of this world that begins to permeate or influence my life. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12, Jesus says these words, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The wickedness that abounds in our world so often begins to creep into Christian people's lives. There's an unwillingness, a stubbornness on the part of God's people to live a separated life. There's a tendency to start accepting a worldly way of thinking. And it begins to sear our conscience. It begins to change the way that we look at things. It begins to dull the spiritual senses. We begin to, quote, tolerate the things of the world in our life. That can be in many different forms. But an increase of that, a steady diet of that in my life is going to have an effect on my love for Jesus Christ. Another factor could be no daily nourishment in your life. That's another way that a small step that leads somewhere, that begins to cause us to leave our first love, that can be found in the illustration of relationships. When you love somebody, you desire to spend time with them. When you love them more than you love yourself, you want their well-being. 
There comes a time in a person's life where I love you means that I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to be around you. But what happens to a relationship that is not fed, that is not nourished, that's not invested into? Maybe jobs. Maybe the busyness of life. Maybe the appointments. Maybe the stress. Maybe the problems. Maybe the feuds. Maybe the fusses that come around. All of those things begin to pull at relationships until it comes to the point that those demands and those things become so overwhelming that the relationship begins to suffer. People become strangers to the point where we, I don't really know you anymore. What's happened? to that love. What's happened to the relationship? Well, it's been starved to death. All the other stuff keeps coming in and it keeps it from being fed with the nourishment that it needs. And so without daily nourishment, it begins to die. I think that's what happened in the church at Ephesus. You know, we can be so busy working, we can be so busy serving, we can be so busy doing that we stop nurturing the thing that's the most important, and that's our love for Jesus Christ. How's your relationship with Christ? Where's that daily nourishment? Where's that daily investment? The Lord hasn't changed. He's not left. But if our Christian life is more dull, if there's not a deeper appreciation and love for Christ, it could be possible that's because we're not nourishing that relationship like we used to. And eventually, that begins to be pushed to the side or to the background and ultimately, it can be forsaken or forgotten. The church in Ephesus had a lot of good things going for it. And Jesus praised the church. But then he said, here's the problem, though. The problem is that you've left your love for me. And here's the final question. We've seen how... Maybe we could lose so easily, just little by little. And you need to examine your own life. You need to examine your own relationship with the Lord. Is it thriving? Is it growing? Or is it becoming more and more stale or dull or unimportant? If you find yourself in that situation, we should ask this question. How do we find again a love that is lost? Well, in verse 5, Jesus gives us a prescription that's very simple and it's very direct. And Jesus says to do three things. We can make them all start with the letter R. First of all, in verse 5, go to Revelation chapter 2 again. 
In verse 5, Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. How do we find a love that is lost? Jesus says, first of all, you need to remember. The first thing is to think back to what it was like when you first entered into a relationship with God. Remember the joy. Remember the excitement. Remember the love for Christ, the the love for the things of God. I remember when I first got saved. I remember how my life was so different and my life was so changed and the things of God were so exciting to me, like learning new truth. And I had even grown up in a Christian home. I had made false professions before. I knew what Christianity was about. I knew the lingo. I knew the things to say. But I wasn't converted. I didn't have a relationship with God. But when God got a hold of my life and I repented of my sin and put my trust in Christ, He changed everything. And all of those things that I knew before, all those things became brand new and were like so fresh. And it was like, Whoa! So excited to serve God. How could God be so merciful to me when I hated Him so much? I want to do all I can to please Him. And God's truth opening up and sitting in church and taking notes or in my own Bible reading, just be like, whoa! I remember that. There are times, there have been times in my life where I've lost that. But then there have been other times when I've remembered it and I want it again. I crave it. It's a good thing to remember because it shows us a mirror of maybe where we are now. Remember how you felt in the presence of God. Humble. I know God's presence is here. Remember how you felt to have the presence of God in you. God's doing something in my life. Remember the thankfulness that you felt for your redemption. How do you get back a love that you lost? You've got to remember what it was like, and then you've got to ask Him, Lord, give me those things again. I want it back in my life. And when you ask from a humble heart, oh, He's going to do it, because that's right where He wants you. That's the first step. And then Jesus says, when you remember, then you need to repent. In verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. It means changing your mind. It means changing your mind about what you've been doing, how you've been living. Maybe repent for growing cold. Lord, I see this. I've grown cold in my Christian life. I'm sorry. I can so easily stray and wander. Lord, I want it back again in my life. Maybe repent of not valuing God and His people like you should. We can get so critical and nitpicky of each other sometimes. 
we can lose sight of how valuable each one is and how we need this body, how we ought to encourage one another, how we ought to be building up, not tearing down. We can, we can lose sight of that. We should repent of that. It's not right. We should repent of it. We should repent of not seeing people as lost souls, not valuing their soul like God does. Maybe because we've developed a critical, judgmental spirit with others, we've lost sight of how valuable they are. Maybe we need to repent of not spending time with Him like we ought to. You know what? There is, there's, there's no way that you can lose a love for Christ if you're right next to Him and close to Him. There's no way to lose it if you're close to Him. Amen? How do we begin to lose it when we've drifted away? How's your personal devotional time? Are you feeding your soul? Are you feeding that relationship with God? Is it valuable to you that you need to invest into it? How about your faithfulness to the house of God and to the people of God? There's some things that we need to repent of if we're not close to the Lord. Jesus says you need to remember, you need to repent. And then thirdly, he says you got to redo. Look at verse 5 again. He says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Do the first works. When you first came to Christ, when God changed your life, when there was joy for the things of God, maybe you read God's word more than you do now. Redo means to change some things in your life that are hindering your relationship with the Lord. Maybe there's some things that you got to reschedule. Maybe there's some things that you got to redo. If you don't have time for the things of God because the schedule is too tight, there's some things that you got to redo that are not as important. You understand? Maybe it means replacing, again, those things that are getting in the way and replacing them again with the Word of God in your life. That means to be intentional. you got to be very intentional about that. You first of all have to recognize it and admit it, and then you've got to be very intentional about it. When we first trusted in Christ and the things of God were lovely and new, Maybe you were more teachable than you are now. Should we stop and talk about that one for a little while? About being teachable? I know the Bible says this, that you're counted as a fool the moment that you stop being teachable. Maybe there was a time when you were more teachable and you tried to apply what you learn from God's Word. Maybe it's in a message. And the message hit home and that truth was real. And that Sunday you made a mark down. This is in my life and I need to apply this. Lord, help me this week. 
to apply this truth in my life. And I made effort. By the grace of God, I'm going to apply this truth in my life. Maybe there was a time when he used to do that. But you don't anymore. Those who taught the Word of God to you, you valued them. But you valued God and His Word even more. Redo sometimes means that you need to submit yourself again. You need to listen for ways that you can apply God's Word in your life and then start making effort again. Sometimes we think things are okay in relationships when they're really not okay. And we convince ourselves and fool ourselves because we're not, we're not wanting to look and examine and listen and see what it really is. That's how relationships are lost. Jesus says, here's a problem. You've left your first love. And then in verse 5, we saw the praise that Jesus gave the church. We saw the problem that He addresses with the church, but it didn't stop there. Then there's a punishment. In verse 5, Jesus says, Remember there, therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. What was the punishment of Ephesus that Jesus states here? He said, if you don't straighten things out, if you don't deal with the issues that I'm showing you, I'm going to quickly come and remove the candlestick. It means, ultimately, that they would cease to be one of His churches. This was a church that was about 40 years old. We are 40 years old. That's what it makes me do. You understand that? That's what it makes me do. Listen, friends, let me tell you something. There are times when every Christian, man or woman, church member or pastor, there are times when everybody needs some reviving in their life. We need some reviving of our love for the Lord. That's what we need. It's human nature to get distracted. And one of the things I appreciate about Jesus here is that He is so merciful to this church. He says, I'm going to tell you some good things about you, but I'm going to tell you the problem with you. I'm going to give you a chance to fix it and get it right. You understand what I mean? The Lord is merciful. 
to the church. Listen, we can lose that love corporately, but we can lose it individually as well. The local church, this local church, is espoused to Jesus Christ. But there's always the danger of that love growing cold. And we can be like Martha in the New Testament. We can be so busy working for Christ that we have no time to love Christ. Do you remember the difference between Martha and her sister? Martha was cumbered about with much serving. Her sister just wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus and be near him. We can be so busy working for Christ that we don't have time to love Christ. And Jesus Christ is more concerned about what we do with him than what we do for him. Labor is no substitute for love. To the public, the church at Ephesus, it seemed successful. Twelve other churches were planted and started out of this church. But to Christ, this very church was in danger of falling. He says, remember from whence thou art fallen. And we need to be busy. And it's good to have corporate things, ways to serve the Lord. We need to be witnessing for Christ. We need to be about doing those things. But my friend, those things should simply come because we have spent time with the most important thing, and that is working on and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And then His love then begins to work through me, out of my life, out into the things that we need to be doing with the Lord. But labor and all of the things and all of the ministry and I got to be a witness and so on. Labor is not a substitute for love. That's the point. And the question is, have you lost your first love? You ask yourself the question. We ought to ask ourselves the question corporately. Are we losing our first love? How do we corporately do that? It, it, listen, it starts with the individuals and the members inside of the body. Well, if you have, the Lord wants you to get it back. But you've got to be willing to see it in yourself and then be willing to repent of it. And then let's get busy and redo. Replace those things that are distracting from our love for Christ. Amen? May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would simply use your word through your spirit. And may there be a heart in each of us. Lord, more than anything else, I want to love you. In a heart that says, I'm open. I'm willing to see. And the Lord Jesus came to this church that was 40 years old and he opened up their eyes. Here's what you really look like. And here's what you need to do. 
And Lord, I pray that we would have the same heart as the Word of God is open to us, that we would let it show us what manner of men we are. To be the mirror to show us what we really look like. And then to be doers of the Word. To not forget, Lord, to be doing something about it by Your grace. And Lord, I also pray that our hearts would be such that, Lord, more than anything, we want to grow more in love with You. And out of love for Christ, then will flow the good works that You've called us to. The good works that You have ordained that we be involved in. But they've got to come and flow from the right foundation. And that's love for Christ. So Lord, I pray that You would impress upon us this truth and the reminder. And Lord, that You would help us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just keep our heads bowed and eyes closed for a little bit. We don't need our piano player. Well, let's have our piano player come.